I opened up my email this morning, early this morning, and got an email from the Czech team. They were winding their trip down, and they actually um, had a chance to go to Prague and kind of check out the scenes there. And they, in the middle of town, there's a square in Prague. And of all things, they were having a bunch of Korean guys doing Taekwondo demonstration. And one guy happened to overdo it, and he injured himself. And lo and behold, guess who's there? Our brother, Dr. Huey Dang. And he took care of him, and everything was all right. So uh, thank God for Huey's presence there. So they say they missed the church, and uh, they'll be back with us Tuesday. So we look forward to having them back and giving us a report as well. Well, before we share the Word of God, let's go to God and pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, church, and we thank you for the Ireland team being back and the work they've done, and also the Czech team. And we thank you for the saints who gathered here as we were shared the word of God that um, be that you would use me as your vessel, and that um, that your word may be spoken this morning. That the saints here would be focused on you, and our hearts would turn to to our God who is in heaven. We thank you for your provision and your love for us. In Jesus' name. The one thing I'd really like to do, um, like sort of as a hobby, is to read or watch on like Discovery or History Channel or about great leaders. Um, not just church leaders, uh, business leaders, and especially uh, military leaders. And it really inspires me to become like them. And the one military leader I, um, I admire from afar is George S. Patton. And this someday I'd like to be the Patton of elders someday. That's my sort of my goal. I don't know if you have seen the movie. One of the earlier scenes after he comes out and makes a speech, um, George C. Scott, here he is in North, Northern Africa. There's a German plane, plane flying over. And he comes out of his tent. He pulls out his pistol and just starts shooting at it. His, you know, his shoot flies right over him, and, and low, um, um, flying really low. So he's the kind of guy he is, and um, you know he has great quotes. I'm paraphrasing here because Patton has a tendency to use a lot of profanity, so I'm paraphrasing here. But it goes like this: one, one of my one of the funnier quotes, and I hope I don't offend anyone here. Says, "I want you men to remember that that a man has never won a war for dying for his country. He won it by making the other dumb guy die for his country." And he said things like, when in doubt, when you're in battle, when you're in doubt, when you don't know what to do, just attack. Then see what happens. Okay. Now this kind of statement stands out, stands him out as a leader. But one thing, one of the few things that, that really stands out, it says, a leader always leads from the front, not from behind. He takes the risks he asks others to take. He sets the example for the others to follow. You know, in the grim winter of 1944, after they pushed on Normandy, D-Day, and the Third Army he led went all the way to the Battle of Bulge, and it was gruesome, the cold, and many of you know that. And he was an astute student of Napoleon and his failures against the Russians in cold weather. And he fully understood the physical and emotional difficulty of his men and the continual exposure to cold weather. So he ordered his officers to not to dress warmly than his, their men so that they wouldn't be emotionally um, affected, that they knew that their leaders were in it with them. And this is what General Omar Bradley, who was the, who was the last living 
uh, five-star generals. He was the last one, and um, only four of them in history of the United States. And he said this about Patton. He says, in the Third Army, we knew what Patton expected us to do, and we believed that if we did it, we would win. Not could, but we would win. That's what um, generalship is all about. That's a mark of a great leader there. But on the other hand, the poor leaders could topple an organization. Poor leaders could affect an army division. Poor leaders could topple a company or even a church. I have witnessed many uh, churches go through power struggles where they have church splits, the poor leadership, division in the leadership, disunity. And we see in corporate America last few years how Americans have lost all trust or confidence in corporate America, the little bit we had. And we see in companies like Tyco, Enron's, and the world comes of the world, the leadership just gone bad. In January 2001, in the January 8th issue of Business Week, Dennis Kozlowski was selected as top 25 managers in this world. And then the excerpt said this, the CEO of Tyco says, Dennis Kozlowski is known as perhaps the most aggressive deal maker in corporate America. But in 2001, the CEO of Tyco International stood out for his leading his company through the recession that flattened most of its counterparts. This brings him close to the ultimate goal, inheriting the mantle once worn by Jack Welch. Jack Welch was a former CEO of GE, probably the no, man known as the greatest CEO in this century, or maybe even ever. But only a year and a half later, June of 2002, he was forced to resign. He was indicted for pilfering monies and tampering with evidence by the SEC. He was alleged with his partners a corporate crime that was charged with looting $600 million, a staggering figure. The SEC accused Kozlowski of plundering this money to fund his lavish lifestyle. And some of the things that he did are these. He spent $1 million of company money on a birthday bash for his wife. They had two gladiators at the door greeting them. And in the home, they had a lion and a horse on a chariot for just for shock effect. His improper loans, he spent millions on fine arts. He said $13.1 million on fine arts, yachts, estates, jewelry, and a Park Avenue apartment for his first wife. He was alleged that he built 72000 for jewelry, 150000 for clothing, 96000 for flowers, 60000 for a club membership, 52000 for wine, and $6,000 for a shower curtain. You know, there are many men like this, great leaders and poor leaders. You know, like General Patton, a man of God must have respect of his men in order for them to follow. But unlike Dennis Kozlowski, a man of God must have self-control over his powers or things of this world. He cannot allow the world to overcome him. The character before God, man of God, is very important. The man of God must understand his role, that he is a steward of the flock that was given to him by God, that his job is to feed the flock with the word and defend the flock with the word. And the many Christians today are ignorant or oblivious to biblical requirements of spiritual leaders. 
the most common mistakes many churches make today, they're eager to implement and appoint leaders in the church, pastors and elders. There's sense of urgency for that. But many times mistakes are made. Unqualified men sometimes are put into shepherding positions because there's just simply a need. When we have a need, there's desperation, so we need to fill it with the body. And that's a great mistake. And we learned last week some of the qualifications of an elder. We'll go into more character, more personal traits today. Nothing is more damaging to a church than poor leadership that cannot withstand the winds of this world, who does not stand on the firm doctrines, biblical doctrines of God, who don't have convictions on these things. We need men who stand up, who sacrifice everything, believe it in the church, leave for the church, to protect his flock. I quoted this last week, and it's a great quote by Samuel Brengel. It says, Church leadership is not won by promotion, but many prayers and tears. It is attained by confession of sin and much heart-searching and humbling before God. So because there's a couple perspectives I want you to have as we go over these qualifications. Number one, that no one has the right to the office of an elder. No one earns the right. Church leadership position should not be sought or just recognized. Because man is only appointed by God. Is recognized by other leaders and affirmed by the body. No one has a claim to the right to the office through their achievement, their stature, or fame, or anything else outside the church. Number two, second perspective, an office of an elder should not be looked upon as the ultimate office of service to God. Although it's a great privilege, but it's not the pinnacle of service. There are many ministries that are very important, that honors God and glorifies God in the church. All the men who are to lead are distinctly called, but eldership is not a place where you reach a certain level of faith or service. It should not be viewed as the Mount Everest of Christian service. It's not. It is a service, although it may be important. So just a quick background again. We remember last week, Paul gives two uh, reasons why he left Titus in Crete. Number one, that is verse 5, it says that he may straighten out what was unfinished. There was an unfinished job that Paul and Titus both knew about, and there was something that was deficient and they must be, it must be dealt with. And secondly, one of those things was for Titus to, Paul says, to appoint elders in every city. Okay, that was first an agenda for Titus. It shows a local congregation there and the believers there are defective or lacking qualified leadership. So as four biblical foundations, and what we covered last week was the fourth one. I'm going to briefly share with you the first three again. Number one, shared leadership, plurality of leaders. This is a consistent pattern in the New Testament that every church had at least two leaders. That God intended the church to have a team of overseers. One pastor writes that, God is not interested in one man's shell. And it is true. Many New Testament examples point to plurality of leaders. Number two is that it's unanimous leadership, council of equals. The eldership structure is a government of collective leadership. The council moves only on unanimous matters. The decision must be 100% collective. 
everyone on the elder team must be in agreement. If not in agreement, what we do here is we postpone um, the decision. We pray because we believe that that the Holy Spirit works through us. That if there is something that we are hesitant about, one of us is hesitant about, we'll hold off on the decision until we could come in an agreement. What's more important, the thought behind there is unity in the leadership. That division is caused. We'll pray about it and we'll pray about it and we'll prolong it as long as the, uh, until we find unity on, this, on a matter. Number three, it's male leadership. Only men are to be to serve as elders. Now, there's, this is very controversial. There's, it offends many people in the world, even churchgoers in the world. It's very politically incorrect. But biblical eldership, however, is must be all male eldership. Because the important thing is, it's not based upon whether one is more able, one is more capable. It's not a matter of that, but it's just a matter of God's design. That is a biblical way of, 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 us, of as a church, obeying God's word. Because okay? in 1 Timothy 2.11 says, Let a woman quietly receive instructions from in, with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over man, but remain quiet. It's a quietness of the spirit. Okay? So lastly, the fourth characteristic is qualified leadership. And we have uh, went over two last week. We'll briefly cover. First was universal qualification. Second was household qualification. And today we'll go over specific characters of qualifications. There's two categories in that. A, a character is blameworthy characteristics and praiseworthy characteristics. And lastly, doctrinal qualification. These are trustworthy characteristics. And this is the only absolute quality one must be able to teach. So today we'll go over character qualifications and doctrinal qualifications. Doug Wilson says this, and I quote you a little long quote, but it's very uh, fitting as we approach um, leadership in the church. Doug Wilson says, The church does not have leaders who are blameless by nature. By nature we are all objects of wrath, Therefore, blamelessness of an elder is only by grace. The task in considering a new elder is determining whether the work of grace is true, lasting and deep. Men of judicious character are rare. The nature of such biblical requirements demonstrates how important it is to have them in the leadership of the church. When elders are examining an important oh, examining a candidate, they should ask whether the candidate meets biblical descriptions of an elder because we cannot see the hearts, whether they have been demonstrated a pattern of God's grace at work over an extended period of time. Apart from grace, there is no one qualified. Okay. Now, most qualifications point to personal character of a man. It is not dependent upon one's success outside of church, business life, academic life. Or contrary to some people's belief that elder is disqualified by driving an SUV. Or they don't consider them Christians if they drive an SUV. Those are irrelevant things. What's relevant to God is man's character. What does the Bible say? We said the first of them. First one was that universal qualification is that one is to be blameless. This is the overarching um, qualification. It's a general sense to be comparative. 
word blameless means indictment, without indictment or accusation or without blemish. This is man's reputation before men, of believers and unbelievers alike. But this says blameless, being blameless does not mean being flawless or faultless or sinless by no means. But someone who has upright reputation, man of good repute, for those who are considering the option that is worth considering his opinions. Okay. Secondly is household qualifications. We talked about two of them there. Number one says in verse six, husband of one wife. We talked about this last week. It's in considering on this standard, we must keep um, the con- remember the context of passage being blameless. That's the overarching characteristics. So we know that this is not alluding to, obviously not polygamy, or that um, it requires a man to be married. We know that in 1 Corinthians 7, that um, Paul says to exploit your singleness. And a single man can't serve in the ministry. So what about in divorce? Where a little bit of controversy comes in is where there's divorce and remarriage. Can a widower remarry and be an elder? You know, the practice of a widower remarrying is perfectly permissible and that nowhere forbids a remarriage after the death of a spouse. And they say that, um, that some say that further prohibits the divorce uh, of an overseer, one who has been divorced. But in Malachi 2.6, although God says, I hate divorce, thus says the Lord. But although God hates divorce, he graciously permits it under certain circumstances when it's biblical. So therefore, we must rely on the text again, on the context of the text, that I believe the accurate interpretation of this is it refers to the singularity of man's faithfulness to his wife. Meaning behind the husband and wife statement is the positive requirement of being faithful in marriage. One who has demonstrated constant faithfulness to his wife. So Paul is saying that marital infidelity cannot be tolerated in the church and the man who is leading the church. Secondly, is management of his children. With, it's at verse 6 again, with faithful children who cannot be charged of dissipation and rebellion. You know, there's a clear lack of parental authority in New Testament days as today. This is why Paul um, addresses this issue. Today, children are guided more than um, their parents. And they, are, they become secondary authority to MTV, television shows, pop culture. Right? Children know more about pop culture rather than biblical doctrines. You know, the Ireland team shared with me how Tim shares his catechism to his young children. I think his oldest one is like four. It's not too early. Not too early. The basic doctrines, every family should have their own FOF to teach their children. The man of God should have influence, be the greatest influence in their child's life. Instead of, I don't know, some guy on MTV saying this, should be my, my father says this. The Bible says this. So godly father makes his home distinctly Christian. A Christian home is not an amusement park. It's a central place where the word of God is taught and practiced. Sunday school is secondary. If you... Men of God should not rely on Sunday school to teach their children doctrine. They should be done in the home. 
That's the main place where people, children, learn doctrine. The responsibility is not on the Sunday school teachers. The responsibility is on the father. So every elder should endeavor to make their home a model Christian home where there's an instructive place and a holy place for the word, God's word. So the word faithful comes into play. Is that, what is the meaning of faithful? Does it mean that must be a believer? That the elder must have, a cho- have children who be- must believe to uh, be qualified? Or is it referring to someone who is, has faithful children who are faithful to them, obedient to them? So in this, considering this context, referring to the word believer, it would, if it was referring to a believing child who has saving knowledge, it would be a de- non-degree, it would be an a- absolute statement. In this context, the two words that follow, that is, with dissipation and rebellion, those are non, um, they're degreed standards. So with a, within the context, it, it's better fitting to consider that as faithful being obedient, because they are all degree standards. All of these qualifications, even the ones we'll go over today, except the last one, able to teach, is the only absolute standard. And these are all characteristics of, um, of a qualified elder. And secondly, we have to rely on this. And as I, my children get older, and I personally feel it as well, is that the salvation ultimately is up to the Lord. You know, parents can keep their children under control through loving discipline, but in the final analysis... That's only the Spirit of God could do to save anybody. So my humble conclusion is that we need to rest in His sovereignty as I shared last week and even rejoice in that because God is in control. Ultimately, God is in control. It's just like anything else that we consider ourselves mere stewards of what God has granted us. You know, but I would go as far to say this. I believe this is what the Scripture says. Okay? But in my personal conviction... Is that by the time my children are adults and they're clear unbelievers, I think it's better fitting for me to step down. And I would, I would hold to that as an important priority for me to take place in, in the home. So today's topic, character qualifications first. Again, the overarching qualification is to be blameless above reproach. The summary statement for these qualifications is the elder must be blameless in all areas and areas under control. One's emotion. Okay. Now, we have to remember, we, we're going to go down to see 11 characteristics. Five blameworthy characteristics and six um, praiseworthy characteristics. But we have to remember, like a, you know, I don't know what analogy to draw from. It's like a basketball player. You have to remember, one could be a great ball handler, great rebounder like Ben Wallace. One could be a great shooter. Okay? One could be a great defender. One could be a great leader on the basketball court. But one or possessing one or two of these things makes you maybe a good player, or a solid player, but does not make you a great player, not a Hall of Fame player. You need to be a whole package to become the basketball elites, right? You know, people who they want the ball. People who, players who the teammates look to in the crunch time. They know the ball's going to go to this guy. You know, the great example of Michael Jordan. You knew 99% of the time, if there's a game-winning shot on the line, you know who's going to go down. Okay? That kind of guy. That makes them, puts them in an elite level. 
Now, of course, there's no elders hall of fame. You know, this is not the purpose of eldership. We are here to serve. We are called to serve. The point I wanted to focus is the point of the whole man. Okay, you know, we dissect these characteristics one by one, but I want to see. I want everyone to see these characteristics as a whole man. Okay, we achieve everything that we are able to. Um, Mature every, in everything and these things on a scale. We were moving on these. Some of us have greater strength in one way or the other. But we, one is, um, we, that's, this is why there's self-mastery involved and we must see this as a total instead of just one, a checklist for somebody. And these are good um, checklists for us to refer to. But it's important for us to see this as a whole. And the important things in this first negative category of blameworthy characteristics is that these are areas where Christians, any Christians, could fall prey to because these involve the passions of a man and it arises from our fallen state. Again, all five challenges are a matter of self-mastery. So as we move from managing his household to managing themselves, this is managing oneself. Number one on the list is not arrogant or self-willed, meaning self-pleasing. The word hedonism comes from this. It means arrogant self-interest. One who is just full of himself, simply put it. Okay. One's characteristics are one who refuses to listen to others. He is too headstrong, too self-assertive, self-assured. Self-willed man has often has trouble Remembering the congregation belongs to God, not him. That he is a mere steward. Self-willed man will build up a world around himself. He is stubborn and he likes to have the ways that he likes to have it. And has trouble accepting different opinions. But there is more unedifying kind of arrogance. I would go one step further. It is a type of arrogance the leader must not possess is the one who looks at this world and especially his church through the lenses and judges his church through the lenses according to his abilities. Everybody has strength and weaknesses. So if one just looks at himself and looks at his strength and measures everyone against it, no one measures up to him. No one measures up to him. So it frustrates that individual because no one measures up to him. He often asks himself, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why does she do this? Remembering that we all have struggles in life. That others have strengths and weaknesses that maybe have strengths that, that we are weak in. And this is a cl- clear idea of proud centers, self-centeredness, which is, I think, the root of many sin, if not all sin. Proud self-centeredness. That we judge people in this way. This is very offensive to God and basically disregards God. Because one replaces his will instead of God's will. A self-willed man has no place in church leadership. Number two, not prone to anger, not quick-tempered. Okay? This person needs anger management. If you need anger management classes, you probably shouldn't be in eldership. Right? You know, 
It's not presence of anger. Righteous anger is justified, even scripturally. But if you're described as one who has short fuse, you should reconsider. And we should reconsider this man. The man of God cannot be associated with the characteristic of anger. This cannot be a pattern of behavior. The anger with the quick anger from a quick temper, mental attitude is sin. Because why are all Christians to have, especially pastors to have, have long-suffering mental attitude? Especially to those close to us. You know, in the church, you know, a man of God works with many people. But he should work in kindness and patience. You know, he should sometimes the leader must allow inexperienced people around him to fail sometimes and exhort them, encourage them again so until they succeed. Work with them. It's also effective in the home. You know, it's easiest to lose our temper to our family members, our wives, our children. They could tell you that. Right? To closest to us. Because it's easily for, for any man to be unsatisfied to those who are closest to us. So the elder must be a person of peace. Cannot be someone who is argumentative, even in defending scripture, we should correct wrong in a loving manner. Proverbs 14.7 says, He that is soon angry deals foolishly. When reacting in anger, usually a man reacts foolishly. But there are three characteristics of sinful anger that I want to talk about real quickly. Three characteristics. Again, going into that. Sinful anger is related to foolishness. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not be quick to be angry in your heart, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So Bible defines a fool as a person without wisdom, right? And a fool is one who thinks and acts apart from God's standards and controls. When you're acting angry, reacting angrily, you are away from God's wisdom and standards. Number two is sinful anger hinders prayer. Your prayer life. 1 Timothy 2.8 Therefore I want you men in every place to pray, lifting up holy, holy hands without wrath and dissension. You know, how many times were you really angry, really angry, just boiling over and knelt down to pray? Right? doesn't usually happen. doesn't usually happen. Thirdly, sinful anger usually is accompanied by other sins. When you have other sins in your life, maybe just contentment, Unhappiness in something. Failure in something. Sometimes anger leads because due to sin, other things like sin of gossip, self-righteousness, judging, complaining, being bitter, and just so on and so on. Third characteristic and character is, is that it must not be drunk, uh, a drunkard or not addicted to wine. It's pretty clear, right? This is simple. You say, you know, nearly 50% of the murders, suicides, and accidental deaths in this country involves alcohol. Okay? We have freedom to do a lot of things. Okay? Paul does not forbid the use of wine, but no Christian should be found in a drunken state. We have the freedom, but we cannot misuse such freedom. You know, even in Romans 14, there are times it is good even not to eat meat or drink wine, things that are permissible if it causes other believers to stumble, even though they may be permissible. 
There are times when other principles demand believers forego their liberties for the sake of love, sake of self-control, for the sake of profitability. And it's also, it could be damaging testimony to God. There are potential dangers of alcohol. It could cause you to be an ineffective instrument for Jesus Christ. You know, we have to remember, it's explicit um, in Cretan history, they were morally corrupt. Okay? These are just points to the vices of life today, as well as back then. But today, we could have other vices, other than wine. You know, I don't think wine affects too many people in this congregation that I know of anyway. But other things, other vices of life. Okay? They didn't have, in Crete, many hobbies, television, music, entertainment, sports, etc., etc. I think it was reflecting, pointing to any vices of life. Although they may be permissible, we need to control them, have self-control over them. Fourthly, not to be violent or pugnacious, quarrelsome. It actually literally refers to someone hitting somebody, a fist fighter or a striker. So one elder cannot be going around punching his flock. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Okay. And this could go to not physical abuse, verbal abuse. It's sort of related. You know, one who is drunk can be had to hit somebody, right? You know, we all heard of tales of bar fights, right? People, when they're drunk, they do these kind of things, so they go hand in hand. But it also goes to verbal abuse. Okay? And this is where the danger comes in. We could say a lot of things to hurt other believers, unbelievers alike. We need to be able to control over these things. Have a patient uh, personality, a disposition, not a violent one. Fifthly, not for greedy gain. With greedy meaning fond of dishonest gain, shameful gain. You know, eldership, unfortunately or maybe fortunately, in eldership there's no free agency. Right? It's not, not like today's athletes. Elders should not follow money. And during the infancy of the church, the false teachers had entered the pastorate because it's a, they made a living off of it. Because the Bible says what? Pay them double honor. So many false teachers came into the church seeking material gain, and that was their purpose. Sort of like you remember in Mark 11, when the religious leaders of Jesus' day turned the temple into a swap meet for their material profit. An elder must be freed from this, have total integrity in this area. You know, love of money is like a powerful drug to any man. Sometimes it clouds our judgment, even the best of men. And the Bible sternly warns about the love of money. Let's switch over to praiseworthy characteristics. It says, instead, must be hospitable, devoted to what is good, sensible, upright, devout, and self-controlled. Okay? And elders must be associated with these things. There are six praiseworthy characteristics. Number one is hospitable. It's a compound word in Greek. It means one who loves to host. And the second part of the word means strangers. So you put it together. One who loves to host strangers. Okay? So this is a quality of Christian behavior, meaning that he's fond of guests. like to exercise cheerfully and generously opening up his home. This is a concrete expression of Christian virtue. 
is within the large context of Christian love and is a requirement for another. Okay? Alexander Strzok says this, this is a biblical expression of love. We have trust that God works through guest host relationships to encourage and instruct his people. You know, the context of this, in the condition of the times, in the New Testament times, hospitality of part of Christians was very important. Many people were hostile. The society was hostile to Christians. So believers in the trials, like um, travels, like Paul going in his missionary travels, going to public inns, taverns, you know, they were they would be exposed to insults and danger in these public places. And not only, let alone, they were just dens of sin and debauchery, immorality. So it's important for fellow believers to offer their home. So that's how they would travel, going from home to home to home. Sometimes people would leave their home. You've got to remember, if the Roman soldiers are after you, you have to leave your home. And for fleeing, those Christians who are fleeing persecution, other Christians opened up their homes. So it gives you a whole new meaning of the context, how important it was for people to do that. But I think it still applies today. Right? Overseer, an elder is one who is willing to open up his home for the needy, strangers or members of the body. He must be a giver and lover of hospitality. He loved to open up his home. People stay at his home, eat at his home. I think it goes beyond just opening up the home. Just one who sacrifices time, his resources, maybe bank accounts, for the glory of God, the benefit of others, especially those in the flock. You know, over the years... That you know, we have counseled many members and the issues of important things as issues of marriage, dating, parental relationships, children's, schools, careers, resumes, so on and so forth, all the way to you know, help people buy cars to computers, to setting them up and all the way to giving dental advice, which I know very little about. You know? I won't mention his name, but one brother, his name does round, rhyme with shame. And, you know, one day we were having Thanksgiving meal, but he had a lot of trouble. And he was sitting on my couch while we were having Thanksgiving meal. He was in a great deal of pain. So we found, we found a dog oral surgeon to do a surgery on him. We met him. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I drove shame to the hospital. And we had oral surgery on Thanksgiving night. And... Um, thank God, because we caught it right in time. Otherwise, they said you have to have major surgery. And praise God for that. God used me in that certain sense to do that. You know, it was kind of tough back then, sitting there in the waiting room and watching him go through that. And um, But that's what God has called me to do, and I would gladly do it again. Honestly. That's what um, I enjoy doing my work in church, is helping people doing little things. And um, that's one thing that... Um, you know, if God calls me to do it again for God's glory, then uh, He'd be praised for that. So it's more than just hospitality in terms of just opening up the home. The opening up everything you have, your cars, whatever abilities God has given you, education maybe. Secondly, devoted to what is good and loving what is good. He is firmly committed to God's word. That despite winds of change, with culture changing, with circumstances changing, his devotedness to God is, and the goodness doesn't change. He's fully devoted to him and his model to his flock. He hates evil. He hates sin. 
He has a heart for the truth. But he has compassion for those who are entangled in truth because he, he empathizes with them. But he points it out. He corrects truth in love because he likes to see other do, others do good for God's glory. Thirdly, he's to be sensible and sober-minded. If you're paying attention, a few weeks ago, Pastor James taught this. The Greek word for this is what? You guys remember? Anybody remember? Sophron, being prudent. Okay. The word refers to wisdom, good sense, sound mind, good judgment. It's the opposite of someone who is fickle or unstable. Sensible person is in command of his mind, control of his mind. He thinks about what he does. He knows what he does. He has control of his emotions. He doesn't overreact. He's rational. He, he conducts himself in a discreet manner. He avoids things that are immoral, unspiritual, and he could dis- has the wisdom to distinguish those things. There are things more than beyond that. Just think that's trivial, foolish, unproductive. You know, many people, especially children, starts at a young age, many people, the things we talk about are just nonsense. Nonsense talk. So, when our children start talking about nonsense things, we say, that's NT. Nonsense talk. Stop it. You know, this foolish things. Sometimes we get in trivial, not outright immoral things, but we're involved in very trivial things of life. That really doesn't have any bearing on our walk. We get involved in these things. Sometimes hours upon hours of our mind, our thought life is devoted to these things. The elders have, must have good judgment, especially in doctrine, have sen- sensible judgment in doctrinal issues, relationship issues in the church. It must be sound so that it will be able to detect errors. Like, you know, virus scan on your computer goes around, goes in your hard drive and seeks for virus scan. We elders need to be like that. The doctrinal scan. Something comes in, we scan, it's wrong. Right? So having a sound mind to do that in counseling, shepherding, um, in matters of life on a scriptural basis. For, fourthly, it says, upright or just means respectable or honorable. An elder must be one who conducts himself that conforms to the directives of God's truth. He could be upright in circumstances and a model of godliness because he obeys his word. This also means fair or fairness. God, godly elder does not just react. He has wisdom to judge a situation and deal with people. It means that he is honest, just, pure. So he's respectable, honorable in the sense. Because we know when he says something, he does it without bias. But he says it with all fairness in his heart. The fifth characteristic is to be holy or devout. It's pleasing to God. It means holiness, simply. Probably is the foremost characteristics on this, characteristic on this list. Because everyone is, to call, is called to be holy. Because God is holy, the scripture says. This character denotes personal piety. It's inner, inner attitude. And conforming or desiring to please God. You know, 
we know that we are on this earth. The divine purpose that we are here to glorify God through our obedience. That an elder must uphold this in area, every area of his life. Is one who is immersed in the Word and who is going along in a sanctification process. You know, no Christian or an elder achieves sinless perfection. But every sin is confessed. Every fault, he, has, he understands his faults. He understands his weaknesses. But he wants to go. He wants to, his goal is he wants to grow and mature in the Lord. Lastly, is self-control. Or discipline. means master of oneself. Is one who is able to control his passions. Restrain himself. In a pastor who does not constantly examine his own life, or any Christian who does not examine his own life, succumbs to sinful desires. This is one of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. Being walking in a spirit-controlled manner. Because if any man, if any of us here, after we walk out the door, going on our way home, if we desire to sin, we could sin. We will sin if we desire to sin. No one follows us around. Even our wives, even our family members, or husbands, don't follow us around 24-7. But this self-control means a man in his most private moments, still remains godly, maintains godliness. The elder must be self-disciplined in every aspect of his life, particularly in the physical desires, because undisciplined man has little resistance to lust, anger, laziness, and other desires. And it is easy picking, easy prey for sin. A leader who lacks discipline would frustrate his fellow workers, his church, his flock. When that's not accomplished in the church, the church will be poorly managed and people will receive inadequate care and the church will begin to fall apart. Lastly, real quickly, is that this doctrinal qualification, trustworthy character, this is entrusted to you, what? The Word of God, verse 9 says, holding fast the faithful Word in accordance with the teaching so that He will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You know, the, the, the text says, holding fast. It's a specific task. You have to remember, you know, when Paul wrote this, Titus didn't have the New Testament to go to and study. He didn't have commentaries. He didn't have PC study Bible or Logos software. He had what? The apostles' teaching. This means holding on, means has the idea of clinging to. So what the apostles taught, they hung on to. They hung on to a tight. This is the word of life they hung on to, what the apostles taught. So it's holding fast to that, those doctrines that they were taught. It's devoting themselves. Acts 2.42, it says, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And today, too many men too many pastors are storytellers and entertainers, stand-up comics. D. Edmund Hebert says, men of God need to have doctrinal infidelity. This is unshakable, fervent conviction, commitment to the doctrines of God. The first is that in that category is to feed the flock, able to teach, teach the flock. 
one who is an astute study, a student of the Word, who has constantly immersed himself in studying Scripture. It is the only difference in the characteristic of an elder or a deacon, and a deacon, feeding the church. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will shout stricter judgment. There's a warning, an important, heavy burden and a task. Because number one thing, the elder's job is to teach. Number two thing is to pray. That's their ministry. Okay. Preaching the word. The church that systematically exposits the word of God to its people is the lifeline of the church and its growth. Second um, task in teaching is defending the flock. It says, refute those who contradict. The major part of New Testament elders' work is to protect the local church from false teachers. It was very critical back then. Nowadays, there's false teachers around, but a lot of times it's just doctrinal laziness. Allowing the world, pragmatism, worldly views, marketing views, to creep in the church instead of being uncompromising to Scripture itself. The perspective, and a perspective elder must have enough knowledge of the Bible to refute false teachers and exposing their error with sound doctrine. In other words, elders must be mature men who could stand against heresy and steer the church in the direction it needs to go and fend off the wolves and denouncing them. In Acts 20.17 says, Be on guard for yourselves, for your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherds of the church which he has purchased them with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, but from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverted things, and to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. The word refute carries the idea of overthrowing, exposing and overthrowing. This was very important because in Crete, just passage after this, in verse 11, Paul says, they were to be silenced because they were upsetting whole families, teaching the things they should not teach for their sordid gain. It's a threatening environment, as it was then, now. The doctrine is not viewed in a proper manner. The, The pastors do not demand his flock to obey the word of God to expose sin to strive for holiness and maturity church leaders must remember the shepherds, the sheep must be led must be led to the word of God holding fast to doctrines of scripture it must be led in this way so lastly I'd just like to conclude with a few final thoughts you know, men, those who aspire to these characteristics, bless your heart. Only few men are called, and few men are called to strive for these things. But again, it's not the Mount Everest of, of Christian service. But any person, any Christian, except the last characteristic, we should all strive to. These are all godly things that any Christian can strive to. And it's a good thing to God because we are all called to be what? We're Christians before God. We're Christian elders. We're Christian servants. 
We're Christians before God. Number two, you know, be careful in esteeming elders. The Bible does say, love your elders, esteem your elders, because of their work, not because of people. If you're following personality, I don't have much personality anyway. I don't. I know it's not that, <laughs> but if you're following man, it'll surely disappoint. Surely disappoint. You're following just because we're great guys, man. You're, it's a great illusion you have. But you follow them because Scripture says so. It says Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember you leaders who spoke the God a message to you. Reflect the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13.17 Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls and will give you an account for their work. Let them do this with joy, not with complaint. For this would be no advantage to you. You know, we will give an account one day of you of our flock before God. And that's our our responsibility. You know, caring for people, helping with their problems, you know, even hearing their complaints, and even refereeing interpersonal conflicts, confronting sin, encouraging people. It's difficult work. Difficult work. But even in that, be careful of esteeming leaders too high. Because we're merely men you know, we have not achieved these these in any way. We're barely scratching the surface. Before you esteem us, you need to esteem our Lord Jesus Christ first. Because otherwise you'll be setting yourself for big failure. We're not sufficient. Only Christ is sufficient. Okay? Don't set yourself for failure. Look to Christ first. Because as we follow Christ, then you may follow us. But we have to follow all of us have to follow Christ. You know, we have been charged with people saying that we are too prideful. That we will do, that it will happen again in the future. That we lack judgment, we're too young, we do too much, too little, too slowly, too quickly, changing too much or not enough, too harsh sometimes, or too easy. This is fact. I'm sure we do all these things. But because we're fallible people, only Christ is perfect. No group, no elder or group of elders is perfect in any church. Don't put too much stock in us. We're like mere Enron stock, right? We're barely there being exchanged because of the grace of God. Invest in Berkshire Hathaway. The highest stock in New York Stock Exchange is $72,000 per share, the highest stock. Christ is above that. Christ is perfect. He is the pinnacle. You follow Christ first. And look to us as men to help you lead. So, pray for us. That's application. Pray for our the leaders. As I said last week, the el- this eldership job is the most daunting task I have ever encountered. Wherever I go, I said, wherever I do, I don't shed this title. I walk, sleep, eat, do everything as an elder. There's no on and off switch. I could turn off being a father for a while when I go to work. But I can't turn off being an elder at work, at home, or in the church, let alone. You know, but we know that elders' calling can be revoked at any time. And we see Moses, his ministry ended abruptly because of his disobedience. We know that God could choose and use any servant, anytime, anywhere. 
you know, without, I realize that without development of God's character in us, it is all by grace of God that we even attempt this. Because this is, the eldership is, I realize, is utterly unattainable. It is only by grace of God that we even attempt to lead Cornerstone. But, again, I get to, we get to love the church. It is one of the greatest honors a man could have in his life, is to love the church. What a privilege it is to love and serve the church. You know, sometimes it's heartbreaking. Again, I shared last week from this side of the pulpit, but it is the greatest privilege. You know, Jim Ricker says this. You know, he says, do three P's in life as a Christian. This pray, protect, and pay your pastors. Okay? The most important thing, I think, is, is pray. Pray for your pastor. Similar ending to last week, I want to leave with you today that you would pray for the current leaders and the future leaders of Cornerstone, that God would grant James and I to be with the grace of God to serve the church and grant to spiritual wisdom and unity of spirit and this, with discretion that we prayerfully consider future leaders and all issues in the church, the way the church ought to go, that God would leave us to godly men and raise up godly men to lead this church for his glory. Let's pray.